You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Question, how many threads connect a doctor to the development of CPR? Question, how many threads connect a community to their own paramedics? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. I didn't plan this, by the way. It turns out this is going to be the third of a trilogy. Let me explain. First interview I did was a book called The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and the Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood by Julian Rubenstein. Then followed by The Other Side of Prospect, the story about violence and justice in the American city by Nicholas Davidoff. And now, the third in the trilogy, if I can say that, totally, totally unplanned. Joining in the conversation, the author of American Sirens, Kevin Hazard, and also in the conversation is John Moon. Kevin is also the author of, I love this title, and when I ask him where he came from, 1,000 Naked Strangers. It kind of reminds me of the book by Joe Connolly, Bringing Out the Dead. So, Kevin Hazard, John Moon, Larry Davidson, you're welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having us. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to go to the end of the book. What I do is I go to the book at the end and I try to read who is acknowledged and also the epilogue. So this is how the book ended, Kevin. Now, hopefully I'm um, quoting this correctly. In Pittsburgh in 1961, 24 black men from the Hill answered a call for help and in the process changed the world. So you want to take it from there. That's, that's a big thought. Your book um, is really important in the context that we're taping this interview a few days after MLK Day, and we're going into Black History Month in February. So let's start from there, Kevin. Well, I mean, look, I think a, you hear a statement like that a lot, and it, it's certainly not, you know, I'm not the first person to suggest that some of these actions um, were earth shattering, but if you ask any person in the United States, you ask the majority of people across the world, what do you do in an emergency? And they will tell you that they'll call for help. And in most places that you will ever go, that call for help will be answered by professionals. In the United States, prior to 1967, that simply wasn't true. And today, it is. And the reason it is, is because the 24 men who did this, who started EMS as we know it today, the world's first paramedics, and without them, we don't have what we have right now. On a more local level, on, you know, on a more personal level, these were guys who the world had, been, world had told didn't matter. And they simply refused to accept that. And in that refusal, they changed their own trajectories and their own lives. And so from any way you want to look at it, this is an earth-changing development. I mean, the paramedic is something that literally we can't live without. Quite literally, we can't live without. And it begins with this story. And so if there's a more fitting way to end their story, I'm not sure what it is. Why did you first decide to focus in on that? At the top, I mentioned this is a third in the trilogy. And what this trilogy is exploring, in my mind, in my opinion, is minority communities in America that most people don't know much about because they don't cross, they don't cross metaphysically the boundaries. And the fact that you've got access to this at what point did you decide this is a book? 
instantly, to be honest with you. You know, I was a paramedic for 10 years. Um, I had written a book, as, as you noted, the uh, wonderfully titled A Thousand Naked Strangers, which was uh, about my decade on an ambulance in Atlanta. And someone who read that book shot me an email and said, have you ever heard of this thing? Have you ever heard of Freedom House? And I had not. And when I began looking into it, I realized that not only had I not heard of it, but the world at large had not heard of it. And, you know, this is a critical you know, incredibly important moment in medical history and American history. And so I knew that there was a story here, but luckily for me, the more I dug into it, the more I realized that the people involved had lived these incredible lives. I mean, you know, each of them is worthy of their own Russian novel. Right. And so it just became, you know, it was just fascinating from the start. So I'm watching John Moon's body language and he's smiling. He really is. So you guys have had a nice rapport relationship. I can tell you work well together. John, there's small moments that capture my attention. And I think about selfishly myself when I was very young and what I focused in on in terms of my life and my family and my environment. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a part of the book when you're very young, I think you're living in the Atlanta area and you're safe harbor. And I always explore safe harbors with a lot of people because we need that little cocoon. As a very young child, was your safe harbor under the porch in your house? Uh, unfortunately, it was. Uh, needless to say, uh, even though it was safe for me, um, it was not the desired place uh, to shield safety. Uh, and the reason I say that is during the era when I was a child, uh, moonshine was uh, prevalent uh, during that time frame. And oftentimes, uh, people that were uh, deliverers of, of the alcoholic contents would store them underneath the porches in the little small eaves right. of the homes. So I, even though I was under there, I could actually see the products themselves. Your family history is really interesting. It's also kind of a, almost like a Russian novel in terms of you went through. Talk about your parents and... I wonder what happened to your sister, who's mentioned the book. We kind of lose track of her later on. So your early upbringing is really interesting. Can you talk about that uh, for a little bit, please? Well, yes. Uh, my early upbringing um, was not that unusual during that time. Uh, it was during the segregation era when uh, blacks were not allowed, uh, even the basics, of uh, things to, to survive. Uh, an example is there were certain stores that uh, we were not allowed to enter. Uh, obviously, um, the bus situation where we uh, were forced to sit in the rear of the bus, uh, there were certain bathrooms that were prevalent during that time that was black only versus white only. So in Atlanta during that time, Segregation wasn't necessarily um, an issue, it was the law. So in other words, in order for you to change things, you had to change the people's heart right. and their mindset, right. and then you had to work on the law itself. So my upbringing during that time frame uh, consisted of the segregated lifestyle that was normal uh, in Atlanta during that time. I want to ask you, how did you end up in uh, how did you end up in an orphanage? Because that's a big part of your life, I think, that formed you early on after you got out of the orphanage, and I believe you ended up moving to Pittsburgh. But what placed you and your sister in that orphanage? Well, usually tragedy uh, causes things like that to occur, 
And the very first tragedy that my sister and I uh, had to experience was the death of our mother. Uh, unfortunately, I remember I said earlier that moonshine was the, uh, I would say, drug of choice right. uh, during that time frame. And there's no doubt that uh, she died from an overdose of alcohol. Uh, when that happened, uh, my sister and I actually were in bed lying right next to her. And uh, my father woke us up and sent us to a neighbor's home. And uh, we stayed there while uh, he contacted either the police or the funeral home uh, to have my mother's body removed. And unbeknownst to us, uh, she had died and we would never ever see her again uh, in life. Uh, that in itself uh, created a different series of occurrences because my father still had to work. And oftentimes uh, he would leave my sister and I uh, at home alone. Uh, she was three years old and I was five years old. Uh, obviously that would be unheard of in today's uh, lifestyle. But we were left at home while he went away to work. He was a carpenter and he was gone easily eight to 10 hours a day and uh, he would fix a light meal for us uh, while he was gone. So we had something to eat, but we knew that during that time frame, we were to conduct ourselves as if he was there. So it wasn't a situation where we got out of hand and we were running up and down the street and things like that. Uh, we stayed in home, in, inside until he actually got home from work. Uh, and that continued for roughly about a year until unbeknownst to us, it became a problem for him. And he, from where I sit today, Larry, had to make the ultimate sacrifice. Right. And that was to place my sister and I uh, in an orphanage for uh, someone else to take care of us. Um, so it wasn't something that he discussed with us or anything like that because we were too young. Uh, he, in turn, uh, took us to visit this a facility, uh, which was called Carrie Steel Pitch Orphanage, um, twice. First time uh, we went there to visit, he was apparently making arrangements, uh, filling out paperwork to uh, have us become wards of the state during that time frame. And we were outside playing, and, and um, once he had finished, he called us, and we left and went back home. Um, short while later, I would say probably about a month, we back, went back a second time. And uh, we had already uh, been indoctrinated to going out playing with other kids and having a free-for-all. Uh, only this time, uh, it dawned on us, why are we still out here? Why haven't our dad uh, called us and say it's time to go? So we in turn went back into the facility to look for him only to find out that he had left. Uh, he had left us there uh, without saying goodbye uh, or I'll see you later or anything. So during that time frame, we became the actual residents of that facility. And my sister was assigned to a different location where all the females were. And I was assigned to a location where all the males were. And um, from that time on, uh, we had to adapt to a lifestyle there. We had to um, coexist with children 
that had the same problems that we had. Uh, children that uh, were left there by their parents uh, for whatever the reason. Uh, some never saw their parents ever again. Uh, some didn't even know their parents' names. Uh, I mentioned that my I was five, my sister was three. There were kids there that were younger than we were. Um, so it was quite an adjustment that we had to deal with during that time frame. I want to ask you a question because this always fascinates me. Um, how many times have you guys been interviewed about the topic in this book? First, Kevin, how many times have you done interviews right now? No, dozens. Dozens. And the reason why I'm going to ask John the same question is, is it easier or harder to keep talking about this as you bring the memories back? I imagine the first time you guys sat down together, it was probably very, very emotional for both of you. As time goes by, does it get easier or harder to talk about this in the context with strangers like myself who read the book, but you don't know me, in terms of bringing back these memories, John? Well, I would have to say it actually gets easier uh, as I talk about it more frequently. And the reason being is that this is a, a life that I lived 50, 60, almost 70 years ago that I had never actually been interviewed about or talked about to uh, the extent that I talked to Kevin about. So once I was able to kind of relive this part of my life, it was in the back of my mind and right. I had to kind right. of bring it into the forefront. So it has become uh, easier to tell because I use it now as a motivating factor. Uh, I didn't know that then, but it was the impetus to motivate me to do anything that I wanted to do because of the lifestyle that I live. So it's, it's relatively easy to tell now. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson talking with Kevin Hazard and John Moon. The book is called American Sirens, the subtitle, The Incredible Story of the Black Men Who Became America's First Paramedics. Kevin, is this book, in a sense, a public service for the rest of us? I believe we know so little about history in this country. And in my mind, this book is telling us a story we knew nothing about. Absolutely. I mean, look, first of all, I, I felt a huge debt of gratitude to the people involved. You know, when I called each of them, the first thing that I said, you know, whether John remembers this or not, was that I was a paramedic and that the decade in which I was on an ambulance was the most um, formative decade of my life. And so I was, you know, I, I was the descendant of, of the people who did this. So to me, telling the story of the people who created the job that changed who I was and left an indelible mark on my psyche was important. But just as important, you know, I, I wanted the world to know what had happened here. Again, this is an incredibly important thing that we rely on every single day. And, you know, so many bits and pieces of history are told throughout the years. And we kind of just have decided which parts of those history we're right. going to right important enough to tell and which ones we're going to allow to disappear. And this is one of the ones we had allowed to disappear. I think in this book, I called it the Troika. It's John Moon, Dr. Nancy Caroline, and Dr. Peter Safar, or Safer, maybe we pronouncing it wrong. Let's tie them together. Safar, thank you very much. Can you tie them together? Right now I'm speaking with John. And John, I've been thinking about having a chance to talk to you for days and days. So for me, I can't speak for anybody else. I, 
I'm beyond the fact that I, had, I can see you and have a conversation with you because you're so important beyond the book itself. But talk about the doctor, which I believe prior to Dr. Safer or Safar, um, CPR did not exist. Is that accurate? Uh, absolutely. Um, Dr. Safer uh, primarily uh, came to Pittsburgh to kind of show the, the world these different inventions that he had come up with. Uh, he tried different experiments using uh, cadavers and and dogs and things like that, and he finally got around to using humans. Uh, and he had trouble getting people to believe that the concept that he was trying to present to them actually worked. And, and that became a problem. So he was very persistent at doing that. And I, I, I definitely give him all the credit for persevering during that time frame because um, you're using human beings to do something that had never been proven before. And uh, so he had to convince those individuals. He had to get their trust and things like that. In addition to that, he also had to utilize a group of people, meaning individuals from Freedom House, that nobody really thought would amount to anything. Right. Uh, the least likely to succeed. Uh, society's throwaways, for lack of a better term. So he this process together and created something that had never been done. The design of ambulances as we see it today, the equipment that's uh, used on the vehicles themselves, uh, the treatment, the drugs that are actually used that paramedics today take for granted. Uh, the best example I can use is um, the world, this country has an opioid epidemic now. Yes. And the drug of choice is Narcan that uh, everyone gives to addicts when they overdose. Uh, police carry it, first responders carry it. You can get it from the drugstore or even the addicts themselves carry it. But what people fail to realize is Freedom House was the very first organization to administer Narcan outside of a hospital setting through a narcotic overdose. So with the help of Dr. Saffer, he was able to create a lot of things that people not only didn't believe in, but had never been done. So Freedom House was essentially the proving ground for everything that you see today. Um, and that's the one thing that makes me uh, very proud to have been associated with him. Uh, another example is tracheal intubation, which is designed primarily either for the emergency room or the operating room. Right. Never been done outside of a hospital setting until we did it. Um, I experienced that firsthand because I spent a day in the operating room with Dr. Saffer, uh, going around from OR room to OR room, intubating uh, unsuspecting people that were uh, being prepared for surgery. Uh, it had never been done before. It was primarily reserved for a nurse anesthetist or surgical residents or doctors themselves, or anesthesiologists, uh, yet you had this lay person coming in essentially off the street into an operating room setting and putting a tube uh, into a patient's throat to allow them to breathe doing surgery. 
So uh, a lot of the things that we did um, is the beginning of what you see today and what everyone actually takes for granted. So Kevin Hazard, let's talk about time and place. The origins of Freedom House and where was located the hill. So you put yourself 1965 um, from a medical standpoint, there is no such thing as advanced care of any type. The word paramedic will not exist for a number of years. Even after Freedom House comes along, the word paramedic doesn't exist. But in the mid 60s, there's no advanced care of any sort. Um, and it is in such poor shape that uh, a report now known as the white paper is released um, by a you know sort of a quiet uh, corner of the U.S. government that states that you're more likely to survive a gunshot wound in Vietnam than you are in the United States. And the reason being that advanced care is available in the form of a corpsman to someone in Southeast Asia, and there's nothing at all available to somebody in the United States. And so it's sort of this flag that's been sent up to medical communities and to municipalities to say, hey, we have this uncontrolled epidemic of trauma deaths, and we have no idea what to do about it, but it exists and it's killing a lot of people. In fact, more people in 1965 alone are killed in highway accidents than were killed in the entirety of the Korean War. Right. So this is a problem. That's what's happening from a medical standpoint. From Locally in Pittsburgh, you have, again, this neighborhood called the Hill District, which prior to the 1940s was, was a thriving cultural hub. Um, it's the home of Black Pittsburgh. It's very similar to jazz era Harlem. Um, a process of... Um, you know, city improvement tears the entire neighborhood down. They are trying to rebuild its image. Pittsburgh no longer wants to be known as a smoky steel town. They want to become, uh, you know, sort of a technological hub. And so they're looking for places to build what what they will, what will be the centerpiece of this new city. And the first target is the Hill District. Um, you know, that was happening in in cities around the country minority communities were just being leveled with no thought to what would happen to the people. So again, by the mid 1960s, you have this once thriving neighborhood that's been reduced to poverty and hopelessness. Uh, so there's a, a man by the name of Jim McCoy, who's a civil rights activist in the city of Pittsburgh. He had for years been pretty prominent, but he was growing frustrated with what he viewed as a slow moving and graying civil rights architecture and so struck out on his own and he he names his new organization freedom house for the freedom that he feels being by himself right and his first task is you know what i want to do i want to provide job training opportunities for people that are living in my community i want to and not just any job but the sort of job that's going to provide them with hope and pride we can't find one you know he's he's working hard and he's doing what he can but he can't make it happen and he sort of through i mean it's a it's a crazy you know story as many things are and there's a lot of threads that come together but he meets a man by the name of phil hallen who wanted to create a very modest ambulance service for the hill district literally just taking people to and from doctor's appointments so hallen approaches mccoy and says hey why don't we come together you have people i have this idea let's create this ambulance service so that people living in a hill who presently don't have adequate access to health care can have it McCoy immediately realizes the potential. Hey, this would be great. These guys will be driving ambulances. They'll be fixing ambulances. This is wonderful. So they go to um, they go to Pitt Medical Center, and while they're there, they come across Peter Saffer, 
And, you know, Saffer, the father of CPR, um, single-handedly developed CPR in the early 1960s, had also developed, um, you know, as John was saying earlier, a, a paramedic curriculum. And he had this wonderful idea born out of his own personal tragedy um, for, for training the people who will show up at your house in emergency to immediately begin care right there in the house as opposed to waiting for your arrival at the hospital. But he doesn't have any people to carry, it, carry out this idea. And so in his door walk Helen and McCoy and they say, hey, look, we've got this idea. We have all these people we want to train to do this thing. Saffer immediately shuts them down. He has no interest in anything modest whatsoever. But he does have this idea for this incredibly complicated and, again, world changing paramedic service. And he lays it out for them in this, you know, sort of like, you know, rush of, of ideas and thoughts. Helen and McCoy are blown away by what he's saying. They're also incredibly intimidated because they realize they do not have the sort of people that traditionally would be carrying out such a thing. They have a group of under or unemployed black men who don't have any special training. Some of them have not graduated from high school. And of course, that's exactly what Saffer's looking for. Human history is littered with false starts at an ambulance service. And so he knows if you're gonna create a new profession, you've gotta create a new professional. In other words, you have to take someone who doesn't yet have training and right. you have to train them. And that's a program he thinks he's designed and he needs to prove it by training ordinary people. And so that's the that's the birth of, of the modern ambulance system. I want to interject something because I believe in pondering the great what ifs. In his background, he was in the German army during World War II. He survived. If he didn't survive, like a lot of people didn't, would this program be alive today? Because this man truly was a visionary, I believe also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He is or was the driving engine, no pun intended. If he wasn't around, would this ever have happened? You're going to get these same things. Uh, you know, somebody would have surely realized that what we were doing with CPR was wrong. Somebody surely would have come up with ideas right, you know, several well, years I, I later. Wanna, I want to stop you once again, just for the education of myself and the audience. What was wrong with not having CPR? What was the operating standard to bringing somebody back prior to CPR? <laughs> in, in, a, in a very simple term, it, what you would do if you found somebody who was not breathing looked an awful lot like what you do to a Thanksgiving turkey. So you'd flop them on their face, you'd press in their back, you'd wave their arms around like wings, and you would look to see if it did anything. And of course, it didn't do anything. And when it didn't, you would do that same process again. Saffer sees this, and he, he knows, okay, this thing does nothing. So he pairs this nothingness with a study that he's read that said expired air contains enough oxygen to keep people alive. Right. So he says, okay, so on one hand, we've got the stupid turkey thing. On the other hand, we can breathe into your mouth and keep you alive. So he says, all right, I'm going to create a test where I will, you know, monitor someone who's getting this turkey method and somebody who's having somebody breathe into their mouth and I'll see which one works better. Of course, the turkey method actually pushes air out of your lungs while rescue breathing brings air into your body. He then pairs that with chest compressions and in one fell swoop, a 35-year-old man creates CPR. So that is the person he is. Does that happen in the 1950s? I mean, he releases his... Uh, report the same day that Sputnik is traveling the world. I would say probably not happen that early, but eventually it will happen. Eventually some form of the paramedic happens. Um, but if Saffer doesn't, you know, smear himself with, 
crazy chemicals to keep from having to join the German army and instead ends up in Leningrad and is killed, then who knows how long it takes for these things to change. And certainly from the standpoint of Pittsburgh, who knows if or how long it would have taken for people living in a neighborhood, people like John to, to you know, get the opportunity to lift themselves up to a better place. Here's the elephant in the room especially if you're a black paramedic dealing with a white patient, breathing into a stranger's mouth. Some people probably were reluctant to have that or even doing chest compressions. Let's talk about how that was handled. Most people don't even want to think about that. They don't want to talk about that. It's standard today. Somebody's coming to save my life. I don't care what you look like. Save my life. Get me into the hospital on time. So how did they deal with that? Because that, in a sense, culturally, was the elephant in the room. John, your response. And, and you're absolutely correct. And, and that ha happened uh, on a number of occasions, uh, especially to myself. Um, there were situations where we would um, show up at a resident's home that uh, were, uh, I'll say they didn't look like me. And there was a air of suspicion uh, to say the least, uh, there were situations where uh, I wasn't allowed to do a complete, what we call history and physical on an individual that required uh, me taking your blood pressure or listening to your lung sounds or perhaps uh, removing your garment and applying electrodes to your chest. Not that there was something unseemly about it, but it was primarily because of who was doing it. Right. So that was basically uh, one of the many obstacles that we had to overcome. And to do that, you had to kind of uh, convince the patient that, number one, I was there to help you. And if you would not allow me to uh, do the job that I was actually trained to do, then you put your own health at risk. So as a result of me, uh, explaining that scenario to individuals, uh, they became somewhat receptive, but they still in the back of their mind thought, I really don't want anyone to see this happening to me. Just put me in the back of this vehicle and take me to the hospital. Uh, they were not accustomed to uh, the emergency room being brought uh, to them uh, by a group of African-Americans, and that had never been done before. There's some very dramatic scenes in this book. Could be a movie of the week, could be a documentary, could be a lot of things in terms of permutations of telling this story. You are a very determined person. You were married, you had children, you had two jobs, you were hospital orderly. You saw somebody coming rushing into the, your hospital. What was your reaction as a hospital orderly in terms of the hierarchy? You were one step above the janitor, which was not very far in terms of how you were viewed. This is, in my mind, this goes way beyond you as a person. It talks about the times and how people were viewed in the medical community. And, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, a hospital orderly was uh, very low on the uh, rung, if you would have it. Uh, they were the individuals that uh, were primarily concerned about lifting people and um, giving 
men bedpans and uh, weighing patients and things like that. Um, just to give you an example, in a hospital setting, if there was ever, say, a patient's valuables missing, uh, whether it was money or what have you, uh, the orderly was always the initial suspect of, of that, primarily because of the position that they played uh, in the hierarchy of the nursing profession. So being a hospital orderly was not, it was a job that, that paid somewhat well, uh, but as far as recognition, uh, acceptance, and things like that, uh, it wasn't that type of position. And uh, once I discovered that it was that, I had to program myself to think that I could be doing something better. In the black community, something said, we have to be twice as good as our white counterparts. You you got you weren't in the first class in Freedom House. I believe you got into the second class. How demanding was the training because you guys had to prove yourself in a sense you had to be twice as good as anybody else just to be the struggle to be accepted into the medical community. So let's talk about the, the training was very, very demanding. And I think the original class was 24 people. I don't know how many people were in your class. But walk us through what the young John Moon had to go through with your classmates become a paramedic. Well, it was quite interesting because um, the class itself um, was primarily made up of individuals that really didn't have a medical background. So it was kind of, you had to break everything down to layman's terms. But as far as the training, we started out with the very basics, uh, which even today is something that you have to at least look at prior to providing any treatment. We had to uh, determine whether a patient was conscious or not, or whether they were breathing or not, or whether they had a, a pulse or not. And once you determined that, then you had to decide what type of care they needed based on the signs and symptoms uh, that were there. And that was a continuous going process. It's interesting because we would go to class and learn a particular procedure, and then the very two, three, four hours after class, we were out into the street actually right. performing that procedure. Uh, so you had to kind of master that skill uh, as quick as possible because very shortly after that, you were going to have to do it anyway under the watchful eye of our medical director, uh, Dr. Nancy Caroline. You know, it's worth noting here, if, if I could jump in, that prior, yes. prior to these guys coming along, the person who showed up to your emergency, if they were trained, and some were not trained, but if they were trained, they had about as much uh, um, training as as a lifeguard at your public pool. Saffer, when he designs this program, he models it after medical school. So not only is it hundreds of hours, but when you are done learning the full spectrum of medical emergencies, he then sends you to the OR, to the ER, to the ICU, to OB. They go to the morgue to witness autopsies. These are all things that you know, th that's how medical school works. You, you finish your classroom and then you go and you do these residencies, you go and you spend, you, you move to different parts of the hospital. So he was, you know, he was really, and you think about at a time when 
if you called for help, it might be two undertakers in a hearse right. um, with flower petals trailing out of the back. He designs a truncated version of medical school to train laymen how to save lives in nearly any sort of eventuality that they could face. It's, it's something that I don't want to get topical in terms of the times again, that white America believes they need police and cops to protect them from the others, to keep them from getting breaching the stockades. And one important part of the book is the rivalry in terms of the police responding to a call and ambulance companies like Freedom House. They're, at one point, they're always racing to the scene, which is really interesting. But that speaks about the dichotomy about the public being comfortable with p- the police throwing, literally throwing somebody in the back of the ambulance and racing to the hospital, as opposed to these guys who became very well overqualified in a sense, not being trusted to go to the scene of a medical emergency and get them to the hospital with proper care. Kevin, you want to talk about that? And John, you could jump in too. You know, throughout its its tenure, Freedom House tried to expand to other neighborhoods. They, they were well aware that in order to survive, they needed as wide a base as possible, both for city funding as well as payment from their patients. So they wanted to expand out to other areas, but they were not allowed to move into the wealthier areas, the white areas, and those parts of town slowly over time began to look at what was happening in the Hill District in Oakland and say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Why is it that people and that those people in those neighborhoods are 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 getting all this great care when we're getting nothing? And it it was a product of the city trying to placate its police force, allowing them to continue to, you know, arrive at different parts of the city with no training, no equipment, no know-how, no nothing except to pick you up and toss you in the back and, and spirit you away where you would live or die alone because nobody rode with you. So that was what the police were trying to protect was, was this really ridiculous model. And it was enforced by the city government that that was what white neighborhoods got only in a black neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's, it's a case of the world being flipped on its head only in a black neighborhood would you get expert care? And it really came into forest. John was saying when there was a heroin epidemic that swept through Pennsylvania, when it hit Pittsburgh, deaths in white neighborhoods kept going up and deaths in black neighborhoods right, went down. The right. reason, of course, was, was Saffer and Narcan and, and, and these guys doing this work. <laughs> and it's really fascinating to see how hard the police not only fought for their jobs, but how hard residents fought to keep the police on and black medics out, even as they began to realize how much better it could be for them. John, your response to that? And 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 that's correct. And and one of the drawbacks is, is that we were competing in a political environment. So you take politics and racism during that time frame, and you really are are kind of in a in a struggle. And one of the things that occurred is the police had a somewhat tenuous relationship in the black community. Uh, Primarily, there was lack of police accountability. As you see it today, there was no such thing. So if you called uh, for medical emergency, the police dispatcher decided whether to send a police wagon or to send Freedom House. And oftentimes, they would send uh, 
the police. So what happened was there were a lot of life-threatening calls that Freedom House were not dispatched to. Right. And unfortunately, when that happens, you have the police show up whenever they feel like getting there. Uh, they would place you in the back of a, a paddy wagon uh, that it perhaps transported a prisoner or a drunk uh, the hour before, and both officers would get up front. So in route to the emergency room, if you stop breathing uh, in transit, uh, oftentimes you were either worse off or dead by the time you arrived. And, and those were the types of problems that Freedom House had to overcome. So what we did is we started monitoring police calls. We had an actual scanner at our base station, and we would monitor uh, police dispatches uh, from a medical nature into our areas that we were servicing. And once that call came over, we would immediately self-dispatch. And oftentimes, I would say 99% of the time, beat the police at the scene of the call, treat and transport the patient there, and pass the police on the route to the emergency room while they were still en route to the call. Um, and that was some of the things that, uh, unfortunately, we had to um, kind of devise in order to get the necessary calls within our own community that we were not getting. Um, so that became the norm to the point where when residents had a medical emergency, they would call the police and say, don't send the police, send Freedom House, because uh, we had established that reputation in our own community. Let's reset one more time. Uh, the book is called American Sirens. This is the podcast, Larry, uh, podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. The book is a subtitled The Incredible Story of the Black Men Who Became America's First Paramedics. Um, we're recording this episode two days after MLK Day. And I want to share my story about that. I was a college student, and every spring I was a member of the lacrosse team at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And during the spring break, we would come east to Baltimore, and we would stay in alumni's homes. And a bunch of us went to the movie theater to see their graduate. And as the movie is ending, the last scene, announcement comes, you must vacate the theater right away. I thought that was the ending of the movie. No, it wasn't. It was us getting out of that area in Baltimore because... Martin Luther King was Jr. was just assassinated. So I'm going to ask both of you for where you were and your thoughts about that because, well, I can go on and on about the role that MLK played in my life. And I later on, I became a teacher with a lot of minority students. And every year in my class, I played I Have a Dream and we did poetry by Langston Hughes in my class. So I'll start with Kevin first about your thoughts about the day and your memories about that and how you reacted in a visceral way. And then, John, especially you, because how that impacted the African community then and even now. Kevin, you first, please. Well, my parents were still in high school then, so I was not around. Um, however, uh, you know, I live in Atlanta right now, and it's, um, my house is about two miles from his birthplace, uh, when I worked on an ambulance, I spent a lot of time driving up and down the street sunset that he lived at where um, when he was killed. 
this, you know, this city has people like John Lewis and Andrew Young um, that, you know, have been very visible throughout the, the time that I've lived here. So the legacy looms pretty large here. And it's something that we live with every day. I don't know that it, it, it's quite as visceral in, in other cities, perhaps as, 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 as it is here. But I can say having lived in this place uh, where his children live, where his legacy lives, where his church still is, you know, it, it, it's there's, there's certain people throughout human history that set an example to the rest of us, regardless of all the flaws that a human has, that set examples for the rest of us of how we should be, how we could be if we tried. And that to me is how that has always felt. John, your response, because I really like to hear the response from myself and more so if anybody listened to this podcast because you live through this and you're an African-American and this is part of your culture in a very personal way, but even beyond that, what's happening in context in America today. And and that's a, a very good point. Uh, primarily, um, I was still in high school in my senior year uh, when Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, I remember the day very clearly because once it happened, we walked out of school, just left, uh, got up, got out of our seats, and the whole school essentially just walked out. And um, it was a very, very uh, dark day in American history. Uh, the problem with that is it continued, and individuals uh, within the Black community uh, became quite angry uh, about that instance. So, um, Larry, I actually lived through the rioting that uh, occurred uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, where uh, neighborhoods were actually uh, destroyed, uh, looting occurred, uh, things of that nature. Uh, it got to a point where, and I had not uh, become a member of Freedom House at that time, but I do know that uh, Freedom House played a very integral part in assisting the police with uh, medical calls, primarily because it presented a, a dangerous situation for the police to go into the black community. So uh, when the police were called, Freedom House went along with them. Uh, and they actually had to leave the lights on in their vehicles so right. individuals within that community could actually see inside that these were people that looked just like them. These were blacks. And, and uh, that, in turn, created a, a feeling of, of safety uh, for the individual patients that we were actually transporting. Um, unfortunately, now, uh, some of the areas of, of the hill uh, that were destroyed were never really uh, able to uh, overcome that. Uh, so as a result of that, you had... Uh, a lot of vacant houses, a lot of empty lots and things like that. And, and if you fast forward to the day, as important as that is, I still would like to see uh, it kind of magnified greater than it is today because I believe it kind of subsided over a period of time. Right. I think the younger generation that we have today really – have very little knowledge, a concept of what struggles were like 
back in the 60s and the 70s that allowed um, African-Americans to hold the type of jobs uh, they have today. Um, one of the, probably the examples that I oftentimes look at is, is I, I look at a lot of TV shows where uh, police officers are in, say, Montgomery or, or Atlanta or Memphis and things like that. And I often wonder, do they have any idea on what it took for them to get that job? Uh, there was no such thing as a, a black police officer uh, doing my upbringing because it was the law to prevent that from happening. I often wonder today, does this generation have a concept of what it took for you to go to school uh, with someone of a different color or a different ethnicity uh, that you have today. And unfortunately, I don't believe they do because that component uh, of history has been removed from the schools. So it makes it very difficult for them to try and understand the type of struggles and, and hurdles and, and trials that uh, African-Americans had to overcome to get you to be able to enjoy the success that you see today. I don't want to get too political, but there's a great debate going on in this country about CRT, critical race theory, and I think it's being demonized, and I, for one, are horrified by that. So I will ask you, how important was it to have Barack Obama become the first African-American president? Because unfortunately, I think when he was elected and served two terms, the backlash led to Donald Trump. Yes. Um, what they did is it actually gave the African-American uh, race uh, hope uh, that no matter what struggles you had to go through, that you could overcome them. And uh, I, I oftentimes, and, and, I, and I know we're talking about today's CRT and Barack Obama, but I oftentimes look at my life in itself and my upbringing and things like that. And I use those type of trials and struggles and things as a motivating factor right. to get to a certain point in life, as opposed to throwing in the towel and giving up and say, so Barack Obama's situation brought a lot of hope uh, into that, but you also have a subset of individuals that didn't ever want that to happen. And unfortunately, uh, that brought about the Donald Trump uh, uh, regime and things like that to try to push things into the background or the, the accomplishments that Blacks had accomplished during that time frame. So what I like to do is as we end this podcast episode, it's never enough time to explore the whole book. And maybe you guys can come back because there's so many stories that I really want to talk about. But I'm going to tease everybody out there. Get the book. Read the book. Talk about the book with Absolutely. your friends. So for Kevin Hazard, we always end with, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss? What did I get wrong over the course of this conversation? I don't think you got anything wrong. I mean, all of your questions and thoughts, um, you know, I think have been swirling all around the, the right, you know, the right places. To me, the thing that always is outstanding in these conversations or, or you know, perhaps not hammered hard enough is 
you know, there was no poof in 1975 and all these guys went away. Um, you know, when Freedom House ceased to be a thing and the city shut it down, the people who had been part of Freedom House went on to lead, to lead great lives and do incredible things. And a lot of that strength, confidence, desire came from the experience that they had. So not only did they gift us this paramedic service that we have today, but you, you know, they, they created for themselves and their community, something to look up to and something to be proud of. And to me, that's lasting legacy of Freedom House. John, the same question to you. I know I missed a lot of stuff about your personal life. So I remiss. In fact, we didn't get into a lot of things, but what did I miss John Moon? What did I get wrong? Well, I don't believe you got anything wrong, but I, I think what you were able to accomplish is something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's to keep the legacy of Freedom House alive. And and even though I was working for uh, the city of Pittsburgh, and, and, and I love that department, and I love the people that work there, but during the initial phase, that was a concerted effort to eliminate, if not all, myself included, as many of Freedom House's employees as humanly possible. Because if you eliminate the founding people, you eliminate that component of history. And um, that was the effort that was attempted. And one part of it was, was successful. They were able to get rid of 90% of Freedom House's employees. But the historical component of it, uh, even today, uh, still lives uh, with Pittsburgh EMS. Uh, I've been successful to lobby city council to have those emblems right. uh, of Freedom House placed on the side of Pittsburgh EMS's vehicles. Um, as we sit here today, uh, EMS, Pittsburgh EMS has been in operation since 1975. That has never been an African-American chief to run that department. Uh, and I'm proud to say today, within the next month or so, Pittsburgh DMS will have its first African-American chief in its 45-year history, and that individual will be a female. And it's someone that uh, I've known for a long time, and that's the component of it that makes me proud. And she herself acknowledges that without the foundation of Freedom House, she wouldn't be able to uh, accomplish that particular goal. So this will be the last word. What I'm hearing from you is another person's breaking the glass ceiling. And thank you for sharing that information. I didn't know anything about that. Kevin Hazard, John Moon, I can't say enough about the book and both of you as human beings. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, please invite me back anytime. Anytime. I'm Larry Davidson. <laughs> Thank this you. Been, this has been the podcast Off No Periscope. Till next time. Bye bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, 
Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.